0: where i live
1: joining us once again for the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast. I'm your host, Vic Sage, and this week we are going to be talking about the 1981 space-themed multi-directional shooter from Namco. I am, of course, talking about the arcade classic, Bosconian. Bosconian was a game that I was first introduced to thanks to that showbiz pizza of my youth. Although, as I have shared on the showbiz episode of the Diary Podcast, by the time I made my first visit to that fabled arcade, Bosconian was already in the lower level. It's days of being in the showcase row long gone. In fact, I've read online an excerpt from Galaga, Boss Fight Book Number 4 by Michael Kimball, who points to the idea that perhaps Bosconian didn't do all that well when released in 81 stating that in regards to Namco needing more cabinets to keep up with the demand for Galaga machines, quote, So, Namco took some of the Bosconian machines that weren't selling and converted them, some of them, to Galaga machines. This required switching out the control panel and board, rotating the monitor, and then applying Galaga art over the Bosconian art. This is why some of the Galaga cabinets are white with a gold Galaga logo rather than black with a green Galaga logo, End quote. Now, back to my first experience with Bosconian. I can't actually say it was a good one as I stepped up to the game and plunked my token into the machine and found out that the joystick wasn't working, like, at all. I informed one of the attendants and they gave me another token and watched me play the game. Obviously, it was still broken and not a case of user error. They gave me another token and slapped an out of order sign on the bezel. The following week, it was gone and I never saw another cabinet in my neck of the woods until Shea Mathis rolled a cabaret model into the arcade about three to four years ago. It was on the floor for a little while. If I'm not mistaken, it was a favorite of Michael Dietrich one of our loyal players, who also holds many of the high-score records at the Arcade. You might remember me interviewing him, I believe, on the first episode of the podcast. Sadly, it began to experience a graphical issue and was eventually pulled off the floor, and for quite some time was stored in what will be the second wing of the Arcade. I might be wrong about this, but I think that Gary Burton, our chief technician at the Arcade, has said that it will sadly need some extensive work to get it up and running again. And while we are, of course, still closed for the time being, due to the COVID-19 virus, I believe when fixed, it will be placed on the deck in the first wing of the arcade. Formerly, where all of the cocktail games were located, along with the Atari couch, I talked about in the Empire Strikes Back episode last week. It appears the deck is now where most of the environmental cabinets will call home. Sinistar, Star Trek, Buck Rogers, and the Star Wars Trilogy arcade game from 98 which is not only one of the biggest arcade cabinets in terms of size, but I believe that makes it the second newest game in the arcade in regards to release date, with Crazy Taxi, which is in the second wing, having been released in 1999. Bosconian was distributed by Midway here in the States, but, as I've already mentioned, was developed and published in Japan by Namco a company that we've talked quite a bit about in the 45 episodes of the podcast, what with Dig Dug, Pac-Land, Splatterhouse, as well as Mappy. The design for Bosconian appears to be credited to Saichi Sato, who I believe also had a hand in designing 1982's Xevious as well as 1984's Pac-Land. Having said that, I have also found some sources online claiming it was Akira Takundai as well as Hurashi Nagumo who were responsible for the design as well as programming of Bosconian. But I believe those two were actually responsible for 1979's Galaxian. It's all a little murky, to say the least. Having said that, Kazuo Kur'osu on multiple sites has been credited as programming Bosconian, with Toru Ogawa working on the hardware support. In addition to Bosconian, Kur'osu has also been credited with Rally X and New Rally X, 1983's Libel Rabble, which was a puzzle game that was designed by none other than Toru Iwatani, the creator of Pac-Man, with Ogawa working on the hardware for the likes of Super Pac-Man in 1982 and and Pal in 83, and even going on to becoming a senior manager overseeing two of the Dynasty Warrior titles. There doesn't seem to be any confusion as to who provided the music for Bosconian. That credit goes to Nobuyuki Onagi, who not only worked on the sound design for Warp and Warp and Galaga in 81, but also Pole Position the following year, as well as Pole Position 2 in 83. He also provided the music for Mappy, 1985's Metro Cross, and two of the Wizardry titles, first in 1989, and then in 1990. Bosconian tasks one to two players, taking alternate turns with piloting their high-tech Star Destroyer fighter ship against the galaxy-crushing forces of the Bosconian Armada. This is accomplished by way of an eight-way joystick, allowing the fighter ship to fly up and down, left and right, as well as diagonally in those directions. In addition, to being able to pull off a 180 degree turn in flight when needed, just by pulling the joystick in the opposite direction that you are currently heading. In fact, the fighter ship handles just a little like the ship in Konami's time pilot, which was released a year later. The agile nature of this Star Destroyer fighter ship comes in handy in later stages, as even though it takes a moment to build up speed, once you've hit full throttle, it cannot be decreased. And you have to be careful of not just the enemy ships of the Bosconian Armada, but asteroids as well as minefields. The latter look just like old World War II underwater mines, but the Bosconian Flyer states they are called Cosmo Mines. They are a little bit more dangerous than the asteroids, as when you destroy them with a shot, they will obviously explode, which can take out your fighter ship if you're flying too close when they go up. The good news is, neither the asteroids or Cosmo Mines will respawn when you lose a life. Speaking of, naturally if your fighter ship comes into contact with either an asteroid, Cosmo Mine, any of the enemy ships, or one of the shots from the cannons on the Bosconian enemy bases, you will lose a life. In fact, this is true for the enemy vessels you will face in the game too. They will be destroyed if they slam into a Cosmo mine, asteroid, or even a shot from their own bases. So, besides the matter of score, especially in later stages, it's not too horrible of an idea to just leave these threats alone. Fly through them if you can, especially at the times you're being followed by bad guys. There's something pretty satisfying about seeing some of the enemy missiles that are following you in formation crash into an asteroid field or Cosmo mines. But of course, remember, that when the Cosmo Mine goes up, you don't want to be anywhere near it. Taking up the majority of the right-hand side of the screen is the long-range scanner. It looks like the one in Rally X, as a matter of fact. In this case, though, it won't show you the location of the yellow flags in the maze, but where the enemy bases are situated. The player is represented by a flashing dot, with the green-hued Bosconian enemy bases shown as green squares. Also of importance is the scanner's color-coded condition alerts. Green means there's no threat in your area. Yellow means that an enemy base has spotted you and is releasing missiles to stop you. Then last, and most severe, is the red condition, informing you that a spy ship has escaped you and alerted its fellow bad guys, and you're about to be hammered by the opposition. This can happen as well if you're spending too long attempting to clear a stage. I will talk more in depth about the enemy types in just a second but these enemies can be grouped up in a formation five enemy vessels they can come at you in a straight line a sort of diamond shape with a lead missile in the center etc i mention this as the long-range scanner will show you what formation the enemies are in you're about to face i should point out that at the very least your fighter ship is armed to the teeth by pressing the fire button Missiles, or shots, will fire from both the front and rear of the Star Destroyer fighter ship. Obviously, this means that the player is just as deadly when hurtling forward at the enemies in the enemy bases, or if they decide that there are too many enemies ahead and retreat is the better part of valor. Unlike in Time Pilot, it's nice to be able to swing around and fly away and still blast those enemies that are hot on your trail. Okay, now there are a couple of different enemy fighters that a player will have to contend with in Bosconian. Oddly enough, on the flyer released by Midway, the enemy vessels are called missiles. First up, we have I-type missiles. When these normally purple-hued ships appear on the stage, they will do their best to head straight for the player's fightership. These missiles, or vessels, won't be able to shoot at the player, so they always attack kamikaze style. And while it's true, overall, you can outmaneuver them if need be. When you have more than one coming at you, plus you're dealing with the Bosconian enemy base's shots and trying to keep an eye on those asteroids and Cosmo mines, you can see how it can quickly get out of hand. There are times when the enemy bases will unleash waves of the missiles. Yet again, these are actually ships, in varying formations, which I talked about just a second ago. In these cases, the lead I-type missile is orange-colored. If a player blasts that leader, the other ships that were in formation will scatter. Although, if you manage to shoot them all, you will get a nice amount of bonus points. To help you stay alert to the dangers of these enemy vessels, you have a warning that will sound. This is one of the elements of Bosconian that helps it to stand out. A digitized voice will alert you to various conditions in the game, such as...
0: alive, alive.
1: Alarm! Alarm! is heard when enemy ships are nearby. Next up is the P-missile, which are kind of turquoise colored and look a bit like a boomerang. In fact, they behave a little like that as they are more agile than the I-type missiles. While, like all of the enemy ships, they take you out with a collision, the P-missiles will swoop around and try to hit you from the side. They are also sent out in various formations by the enemy bases to demolish the player's fighter ship. Although, the leader in this case is a gold color. The same rules apply with all of the enemy ship formations as the I-type missiles. Take out the leader, and the rest of them will scatter. Now, the game will also let you know when a formation of ships has been dispatched to take out one of your fighter ships. With the E-type missile, you have an enemy vessel that is quite dangerous. It is usually launched from the very core of the Bosconian enemy bases themselves. The majority of them are orange and red-hued. In addition, they typically do not waste any time in trying to maneuver around the stage to get at the player. They are quite quick and move in a straight line, depending on how the enemy base itself is oriented. You see, the Bosconian enemy base's openings are either situated vertically or horizontally. However, the E-type missiles that are launched in a formation with a blue and green ship as a leader can turn and track the player's fighter ship. Yet again, take out the leader of the formations and the other ships will scatter. Of course, sacrificing those bonus points if you do so. All right, there is an even deadlier enemy ship for you to beware of and that is the green-colored spy ship. Once it appears on the stage, you will be informed by the game with silence. That was spy ship sighted, by the way. When the spy ship shows up, you have a limited amount of time to take it out. Its goal is to get away from you and raise the alarm of the Bosconian Armada. Although, it has no problems trying to swoop in and take you out if you aren't paying attention. If it manages to get away, then you have a big problem on your hand.
0: Condition wind. Condition
1: Once the Red Alert is triggered, you will start to be swarmed with the I-Type and P-Type missiles. Only way to reset a Red Alert is to clear the stage of the Bosconian bases. Last, but not least, are the Bosconian enemy bases. These are larger enemies, and they have three pods, or cannons, on each side of the opening to the base itself. Just large enough to fire off an E-missile at you, or, for your shot, to strike the glowing core in the very center of the base, causing it to explode. The shots from the pods can travel in all directions. The pods are naturally easier to hit than the core itself, but you get more points for taking out the center of the base. If you blast each of the pods, the base will still blow up. Having said that, beginning on stage two, the enemy will attempt to stop you from hitting that core by covering itself up. Its armor can't be penetrated by your shots, but to fire off a missile at you, it has to open back up. So if you're lined up properly, Remember, depending on the base, this is either vertically or horizontally, you can take out the missile and the core with a couple of shots. Once the last base on the long-range scanner has been destroyed, you have cleared the stage. Okay, I think that is the rundown on the gameplay for Bosconian. Real quick, the scoring is as follows. Players will get 10 points for every asteroid, 20 for each Cosmo Mine, 50 points for each I-missile, with 100 points for taking out the leader in a formation, 60 points for the P-missiles, blasting a formation leader earns you 120 points, 70 points for E-missiles, with 140 for removing a formation's leader. The spy ship will net you 200, 400, and 800 points. I believe the varying scores depend on how quickly you blast it. Taking out a pot on the Bosconian enemy bases earns you 200 points each with 1,500 points for striking the core. And you might recall I mentioned getting a bonus for taking out all of a missile formation. That breaks down to 500 bonus points for the I missiles, 1,000 for the P missiles, and 1,500 for wiping out an E missile formation. Score, of course, plays into the game, as at 20,000 points, you will earn an extra ship. At factory settings, as I understand it, every 70,000 points after that, you get another extra life. Bosconian, by the way, is one of the first arcade games that possessed a continue feature. For a little while, it was believed to be the first, but online, I've read that it was actually SNK's Fantasy that earned that title, being released in October of 1981. With Bosconian hitting the arcades of Japan on November 20th of 1981,
2: and now these messages.
1: Hey, that's Sparta. Yeah, it's the official tabletop version of the arcade game. Oh, it plays the same. same. Think again. The arcade is here. Galaxy, <laughs> it's, it's mine. Pac-Man. You want to take it home? Yeah.
2: My own Pac-Man. arcade?
1: Could you? Donkey Kong. <laughs> Donkey Kong? The official tabletop version. Frogger, Donkey Kong, and Midway's Pac-Man and Galaxia. The arcade games you can take home with you from Coleco. Galaxian warriors, today we're going up against the most feared commander. But everyone
2: counts. Even you quid. Man your chips. Man your ships. Man your ships.
1: Boeing's ready, sir. Okay, I'm peeling off. Cover me, cover me! Roger on
2: that, Blue Leader. Heavy fire, 17 degrees. Affirmative. This guy's good! Watch your back! We lost Blue Leader. I'm hit!
0: Who's left? Quid! No!
2: Quid, you're a credit to your cartridge. Galaxian, the arcade hit. Now for the Atari 2600 system.
1: As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I have read that Bosconian didn't do as well as Namco had hoped. But while that might be the case, I can tell you that the game won the 1983 Arcade Award from Electronic Games Magazine in the category of Best Science Fiction and Fantasy Coin-Op Game. I should add that runners-up in this category were Sega's Zaxxon and Atari's Gravatar. In addition, the Japanese video game magazine Gamest back in 1998 stated they felt that Bosconian was one of the best arcade games of the 80s in its genre. For what it's worth, Bosconian was ported to at least a few home computers of the day. To tell
2: you more about that is none other than Earl Green. We have transport. Bosconian was almost too much game for early hardware platforms to handle. I say that because it was several years before home computer versions started to appear, and console versions were limited to the MSX platform that had gained wide acceptance in South America and Europe. Also in Europe, you could find versions of Bosconian on the Amstrad computer, the Commodore 64, and the Sinclair ZX Spectrum, and most of those were sold under the title Bosconian 87. Now, there was a Tandy Color Computer game inspired by Bosconian, clearly inspired by Bosconian, with a little bit of Defender DNA because not only were you tasked with blowing up the space stations, but you had to rescue trapped humans who were being held prisoner inside the stations. Now, that Tandy Coco game was called Draconian. Put a pin in that because we're going to come back to that name. In the 90s, Bosconian began appearing in the Namco Museum compilations on such platforms as the PlayStation and that was kind of when I rediscovered my love for the game after being away from it for so many years and then of course it popped up in MAME and the rest is history. I love Bosconian. It is absolutely one of my favorite games. Now I I have my own theory as to why the game is titled the way it is and that is my assumption that there is some off-screen boss bad guy named Bosco who is in one of these space stations, you know, trying to thwart your every move. So anytime I play Bosconian and the game is beating me really good, I shake my fist at the sky and I yell, BOSCO! Okay, maybe that's just me. Now there is, of course, a Atari 2600 port of Bosconian now under the title Draconian which was decided on by the game's developers who included, let me see here, Daryl Spice Jr. was the, the main brain behind Draconian for the Atari 2600, which you can get on cartridge at atariage.com, and I highly recommend it. It is as excellent a port of Bosconian as you could hope to get on the 2600, and it's proof that it's possible to do that game on that platform, after all, I think it's proof that modern Atari homebrew programmers, with the tools at their disposal, which the original Atari programmers at Atari and Activision and Imagic and other companies like that could only have dreamed of, they can do anything. I'm I'm kind of consistently surprised that they just straight up haven't got MAME running on the 2600 at this point. But Daryl Spice Jr. and his cast of cohorts managed to turn out Draconian in 2018, after several years of development, and it was quite a bit of fun. In fact, the game debuted at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo that year, and as a perk, along with the cartridge, being one of the first people to get the cartridge at PRGE, there were 3D-printed models of the Bosconian-slash-Draconian Space Station, uh, 3D-printed in -in glow-in-the-dark green plastic, and that's, that's really kind of cool. And there were arcade sequels to Bosconian. In addition to the original game released in 1981, there was a 1989 arcade game released by Namco, and I've done a Phosphor Fossils video on this because it was something I discovered, you know, kind of playing Mame Roulette, where you randomly pick a game and try it out for the first time. I was amazed to discover that the game Blast Off, which of course is one of the phrases spoken by the speech synthesizer in Bosconian, Blastoff is sort of a late '80s, early '90s take on Bosconian. You still have space stations to blow up, but things unfold in a much more of a vertical shoot 'em up format, whereas Bosconian itself is sort of freeform. You could go in any direction. In Blastoff, you are, you know, most definitely headed upward to try to take out your targets. There's a PC Engine version of Blast-Off under the title of Final Blaster, which was released in 1990. So it's been a long wait to be able to play Bosconian at home, but with some of the excellent ports out there, I think the wait has just about been worth it. Thank you, Earl. I've already talked a bit about Bosconian at the
1: arcade, but I am happy to say that, once again, we have Gary Burton with a new segment, talking about another Namco title at the arcade. One you might be familiar with if you follow us on the Diary of an Arcade Employee Facebook page. Take it away, Gary!
0: Hello everyone, Gary here, the Head Game Tech at Arcadia Retrocade, filling you in again on some recent work we've been up to lately. This past week we took another look at Gapless, the 1984 sequel to the Bally Midway hit, Galaga. While the game is also known as Galaga 3, the version at Arcadia Retrocade is 100% Gapless. Our cabinet had been stored since last year when it was found to have no power going to the monitor, no power supply, and a control panel that was in pretty bad shape. Once we hauled it back to the arcade and knocked off the dust and spider webs, it didn't seem to be as bad as we once thought. A new switching power supply brought the game board back to life, and some new wiring and cleaning had the game screen back in operation pretty quickly. The control panel took a bit more work to make presentable. The ballet joystick was seized up and had to be disassembled before it could be cleaned and tweaked back into service. A new vinyl overlay was found that matched the cabinet perfectly, and after a good cleaning and fresh coat of paint, the control panel looked new again. A new fluorescent tube, the marquee, and a credit button installation by my son William was all that remained to get the gapless back. On the arcade floor. End of the story, right? Well, not so fast. About a week after Gathos was placed beside its Bally Midway siblings, the screen went dead. The game still played blind, but nothing was on the screen. After pulling out the monitor, I noticed all the really bad screen burn for where the game had been left powered on for very long periods of time during its life before it at our arcade. The result was having the attract display permanently burned into the monitor, even with the power turned off. While there was no way to prove this with a serial number or anything like that, I suspect that this particular Wells Gardner G07 monitor was the original one included in the game cabinet more than 35 years ago. I dropped in another comparable screen and Gapless is back again and in a prominent spot near the arcade snack bar. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you have a great week. Bye-bye.
2: I've not
1: seen such
2: bravery.
0: And friends,
1: I think that about wraps up our episode. As always, I want to thank you again for taking the time to listen to the show. I really do appreciate your support and hope that you will all enjoy this second season of the podcast. I know I'm no expert, just a fan of classic arcade and home console games and enjoy talking about them. The Diary of an Arcade Employee is currently available on iTunes, and I am working on rebuilding the podcast library very slowly, a result of switching from the RetroA site to the Pop Culture Retrorama one. You can check out daily posts by visiting www.popcultureretrorama.com. The Diary of an Arcade Employee is available on Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. No matter how you listen to the show, if you have a moment and enjoy the podcast, why not give us a rating and a review to help us find new listeners? You can find out more about the Arcadia Retrocade by visiting Facebook, or for daily posts, you can check out the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast Facebook page. I do my best to share all manner of vintage arcade and home console fun multiple times a day. Earl Green is a frequent contributor to the Pop Culture Retorama site, as well as being a very good friend of the Arcade. As I've mentioned before, he's donated most of his home console games, and even more to Arcadia. Earl also happens to head up thelogbook.com, one of the longest-running websites for literally all things pop culture-related. Gary Burton frequently shares photographs from the work he's doing at the Arcade. You can find those on the Diary of an Arcade Employee Facebook page. In addition, from time to time, he contributes articles to the Pop Culture Retrorama site. If you have any feedback or comments about the podcast, you can always reach me on Facebook or throw me an email at vicksagepopculture at gmail.com. You also can often find me posting videos of the arcade, well, when it was open, on my Instagram account, which is simply vicksage underscore. Naturally, I want to thank the Retroist, For over a decade the Retroist provided a spot on the internet where fans of all things retro could visit and enjoy the best retro related articles and podcasts. I certainly wouldn't have my own site or multiple podcasts without the Retroist support. Have a token on me as you listen to a clip of the game we'll discuss on next week's show. This has been a pop culture retrorama podcast. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. The Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast is not affiliated with or authorized by Konami, Sega, Namco, or any of the individuals and businesses that have been mentioned in the show. All music and sound clips from the mentioned video games are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purpose of review, criticism, and commentary only, and are not intended to infringe.
0: What do we do? We die. End of line.